Hi, and welcome to Work Together, a podcast brought to you by Social Optic. Social Optic offer tools and expertise, empowering organisations to gain critical insights, make informed decisions, and work together better. In this podcast series, we ask experts in their field for their views, thoughts, and advice on topics that we encounter with organisations and leaders, ranging from technology and data science to organisational culture and psychology. Roll intro. On today's episode, we'll be looking at the topic of organisational culture, strategy and change. Joining Benjamin Ellis is Alison Minns, a culture specialist with over 10 years experience. Alison discusses the importance of accountability for behaviour and the role of leaders in setting behavioural standards, the connection between culture and strategy and the opportunities that a strong organisational culture can bring. Let's dive in. I don't think you can be credible as a leader unless you are sort of role modelling and showcasing and and setting the tone and expectations for those for those behaviours yourself. Welcome to the Work Together podcast. I am joined by Alison today. And Alison, I'm going to get you to introduce yourself um, for our listeners. So, um, yeah, because it's a kind of fascinating background you've got. So tell us who you are. Thank you. Thanks, Benjamin. Uh, Lovely to be here today. Uh, Alison Mins, I um, most recently have been the global lead for culture at HSBC, and I um, was in that role for about four or five years. Uh, Prior to that, I was a consultant um, working with a number of different clients across a variety of sectors and industries, so pharma, manufacturing, um, some tech startups, helping them with culture challenges specifically, but also some change management work. Uh, Some of them were going through IPOs, some were going through mergers and acquisitions, some just had general um, employee communication and engagement challenges that they needed some some support with from a culture angle specifically. But I really got into the world of culture um, with the job before that, which was at Lloyd's Banking Group. I was there for 10 years. Um, I did a, a variety of, of program management and change management roles in the expatriate banking business uh, back in the days when they were international, pre-financial crisis, before moving into HR. So I made a sideways move after about five years of working in, in the, the sort of um, change space in, in, in that bank and, and landed eventually, after a few sort of um, a variety of roles in, in HR, landed as, as one of the first um, culture roles that Lloyds Banking Group created on the back of uh, the financial crisis and some of the um, PPI um, issues that were going on at the time. So that was way back in 2014. So I've been a culture specialist for for 10 years um, now and love it. Still my passion, um, still the the thing that I I get excited about and can only see more and more opportunities and or headlines with uh, culture cropping up uh, as time goes on, which uh, which is great for me to see. Definitely does seem to be going that way. I'm going to tease you a bit now because um, oftentimes people bring the culture issues to to HR to solve. In some ways, you literally brought the culture issue to HR by, by your career path. Um, but there is that thing um, about, on the one side, who owns culture, and on the other side, some people who, who just say, "Oh, well, you know, culture that's that's an HR issue." And what, <laughs> what's your experience been? Who who owns culture? Yeah, it's 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 not the first time I've been asked that question. I have to say, it's one that crops up quite a lot, and and it crops up 
sometimes with the tone of you can't surely expect this to be HR's thing to deal with, you know, a sort of a, you know, how, how could HR, you know, from the in, inside voice of HR, how can we possibly deal with the whole culture of an organisation? But equally, on the, on the, on the flip side, it does need a home somewhere, usually within an organisation that's got a bit of structure anyway. Um, so I do I do find um, quite often the home for culture work, culture change does sit within the HR function. And I think that's purely as, as, um, as a result of HR being the people experts, you know, and, and I've certainly in my, my time being part of the HR function, I've seen, you know, changes go on where, you know, HR overall reviewed as, as um, you know, you, you only do the operational stuff and it's payroll and it's grievances and it's disciplinaries and, and, and that's about it. And now, actually, I think HR are trying to come out the other side with um, some real strategic business partnering. And I think culture does fit into that category. However, um, I think if we get into a little bit more detail, if I'm if I'm allowed to at this at this point, this early point in the uh, in the session, we'll um, let you. We'll let you. Yeah, good, <laughs> great, thank you, thank you. Um, it is a bit more complicated than that, and and I think there's a variety of levels of accountability around culture, and, and one of the ways I think about it is culture is essentially the output of how collectively people are behaving inside a, inside a business or, or an organisation. So if we're talking about people's behavior, then I very firmly believe, both professionally and personally, that everyone is accountable for their own behavior. So you can never outsource whether you are the CEO, C-suite leader, HR, head of finance, CFO, it doesn't matter. But your behavior is your behavior and you're accountable for it. And obviously, the further up you travel through a, a hierarchy in an organization um, or into a position of power, even if it's a fairly flat hierarchy, your your influence and and the influence you have over others and, and their careers expands. So, so then no longer are you just accountable for your behavior, but you've also got to be role modeling and setting some standards, behavioral standards um, for others as well. And I think that needs to be visible. And I think you need to help people with um, not only saying what you'd like to happen behaviorally, we should be, be behaving like this. And that might be through you know something official like some values or it might just be what you're what you're um, saying in other in other forums and formats. So I think you you've got to help people by also acting in line with that. And I've got countless um, examples, some of which I, I probably wouldn't be able to go into, but um, but where leaders don't walk the talk um and the and the and the challenges that gives employees the dissonance that causes them is really difficult i don't think you can be credible as a leader unless you are sort of role modeling and showcasing and, and setting the tone and expectations for those for those behaviors your yourself a couple of other points i think in why the business the business leaders specifically whether it's a ceo or perhaps at the level under that need to think very carefully about about culture and the role they want to be playing in it one is they they usually have set the strategy at a certain level you know up whether it's the ceo themselves or the, or the executive um committee or, or whatever the culture and culture change if you want to change anything about the culture of the organization must be anchored in whatever the business is trying to do because otherwise culture just ends up and i see this a lot as well it just ends up being some extra thing that's left floating out not really plugged into anything in the organization 
because it's very complex, um, it's probably the com- most complex thing out there because we're talking about lots of people's behaviours and most people don't even understand why they behave as individuals in the way they do, let alone um, how we all behave collectively. So, so it's a it's a complex, nuanced topic. Um, that that means what I, if you're if you believe it, it should be there to accelerate your strategy, which I do believe, and it's anchored in in helping you achieve your strategy. A great healthy culture of high performance should be helping you achieve whatever your business is, is there to do. And equally, if you're not focusing on your culture and some some um, issues crop up. And hopefully it wouldn't ever turn into a toxic culture, but that does happen. That will clearly be detracting from you um, achieving your strategy. So why you would then want to sort of um, devolve responsibility for that or the work that goes into that or or, um, any of the other bits and pieces, the expertise that goes into that to to a function that already has a whole load of super important, um, you know, mission critical um, jobs as part of it. You know, I, I, I'm not sure. So I think leaders leaders have got a crucial role to be playing. I think everybody has a role in terms of everybody's accountable for their own behaviour. But HR are the people experts typically in an organisation. So actually, if it needs a home, um, then HR can be the ones sort of holding up the mirror, setting some standards, you know, being being the experts um, around it. But but that isn't always the case. I think there's no. I think the one thing I've learned about culture is there's no hard and fast with them. Uh, I was talking to a VC recently who, um, uh, in, in the somewhat dry tone that VCs can sometimes uh, adopt, said, oh, well, culture in early stage companies is um, is a CEO problem. I said, because they're usually the one that's caused the culture problem, um, <laughs> yeah. which was was harsh. But I think for people who've worked with early stage companies, they may, may recognise some aspects of that and that what, what gets modelled is, is what happens. I think it's interesting in the shift of who is accountable for culture um, because increasingly that is becoming a board level issue in a way that perhaps it wasn't before either at particular inflection points in the business um, you know in terms of things around mergers and acquisitions but also in terms of uh, compliance risk, essentially risk to the business, and and looking at the board's responsibility for that. Boards seem to be a lot more interested now in that than than they were before. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely, and and certainly some of the companies I've worked in being regulated. Um, you know the, the 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 question, not just the UK financial services regulators, but I know the New York Fed. Um, I know APRA in Australia. Um, I know there's quite a few um, MAS in Singapore. Um, HKMA for, for Hong Kong. Um, I, I, I know a lot of regulatory scrutiny is is increasing. Um, if I'm honest, and I'm and I'm sometimes a little bit controversial in my in my views and opinions, but if I'm honest, I'm. It's been a regular. It's been on the regulators' radar from financial services point of view anyway, since the financial crisis in 2008. That's a long time ago. Um, and, and I'm and I'm a little bit surprised we've not was, you know, we're still sort of seeing some of the stories that that hit the headlines um, that we do. So I think what I take from that is that no one has cracked culture, whether it's accountability for culture, whether it's measurement for culture, whether it's any of these, even even dare I say it, a definition. For, for culture and, and, you know, especially organisational culture. So, you know, I, I think that just goes to support the point that I was making earlier about how complicated and, and complex it is as a topic. 
specifically in terms of that board level um, discussion. So um, I tend to see um, leaders and, and boards looking at culture from one of two angles. And there probably are some others, but the main two angles I see are either we need to mitigate risk. So looking after our culture is a risk mitigation exercise. On the other side, and perhaps this is more, you know, perhaps the less regulated organisations or some of those, you know, early um, early startups or, or scale-ups, um, where actually culture is a massive opportunity. You know, we've got an amazing culture. Um, and I see something, some of the, the, the um, organisations with the, the VCs you, you were talking about, I actually see on the positive side to that, some of the CEO founders you know, bring bring their own flavor of, of a culture completely with them because it this is you know their thing. They they you know they're so passionate about it, and that visionary um, element really brings people with them. And if people buy into that vision, then you you've quite often got an amazing amazing culture. But then sometimes it can go a bit off course, you know, for, for various reasons, different reasons, perhaps in the more regulated industries. So so I think. Yes, the the conversation is is elevating. I'm really pleased to see that. I think um, the role of of boards in particular um, is in part to uh, help keep the management committees on on track, you know, and hold them accountable a little bit. So I, I if I talk a little bit in le- levels, perhaps of accountability, I think I think the boards are accountable for for in some way, sort of setting a bit of a, a direction around the purpose of an organisation. So, in, in my opinion, they should be involved in helping shape and, and set that, along with a lot of other people. That isn't just for the board, but I think ultimately the board needs to be clear on why a company exists. The management committee and, and a couple of levels below that, actually, though, I think the leaders, if I use that term collectively, are accountable for the culture. And, and what I mean by that is creating the environment in which their teams operate and they need to be really aware of that and I get that that's a really big statement and I get it's quite scary actually for people new into leadership roles but in that position um, then I think the the easiest suggestion you know to, to um, put to people is is get out get out there and ask people what it feels like to work here especially if you've not come up through the ranks of that organization yourself you know so that might not be obviously anymore going into the physical presence of the, of the company depending on, on the nature of the organization but just scheduling some time with some random people at different in different functions different levels just ask them what's it feel like to work here and then listening and that's the important bit asking the questions the easy bit but 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 not not then overriding with oh i think this i see that you know just listening to how it feels to work here so that you can start to form a form of you and you can decide whether that's in line with what your there to do as, as that leader of that particular part of the business or as the CEO. So I think this, the, the CEO and, and leadership, however that's defined, um, is ultimately accountable for the culture in that it's creating the environment. And then, as I said before, everybody's got a responsibility for their own behaviour. So, so yeah, boards and um, and those exec committees, um, accountability. I think I think this is only I think this is slightly you know negative. Um, perhaps a future predicting of me, but I think as people get more interested in culture and they get more interested in it, not just from a protecting companies from a risk and protecting them against the headlines, they're more interested in terms of um, ESG point of view as well. So they're wanting to attract 
both investments from investors and people into an organization. And the culture now, I think there's a general level of acceptance that what an organization is like, what it feels like, is a really important driver for that. Oh, so many things I want to come back to in there, because uh, that touches on the issue of what I call performance cultures, which is a real thing at the moment of wanting to make a culture appear a certain way, which is what a lot of people do. But the lived culture is quite different. And that disconnect can be massively problematic for organisations. Um, thinking of a few that have come across recently where you know, they hired loads of people into this espoused value, but the inside of the company actually wasn't that at all. And unsurprisingly, you know, all of those people left and it was a massive uh, wasted investment in, in trying to bring them on. Um, but coming back further than than that to the that board piece of it, I, mean, I remember in the the 90s working with Cisco Systems, I was involved in a lot of the acquisitions and you know looking at companies and deciding whether that was was a fit. And it was interesting that one of the rules or tests that Cisco had was actually looking at cultural fit. And, and that, I think, was pretty unprecedented at the time. And in fact, still to some degree is something that a lot of organizations don't look at. They're like, we'll buy them and we'll fix the culture. Good luck with that. Um, yes. But actually, that was one of the things was going around talking to the people listening and thinking, how, how will our team interact with their team? Are there shared values? Are there shared behaviors? Or is this actually just going to turn into a, you know, a, a dogfight on the ground um, at the point of acquisition, in which case we're not going to get the value for it. So it was interesting that that was very much a board level view on cultural fit was, was a go, no go for acquisitions. And I think that's really only just coming back now, isn't it, in terms of people starting to make that a test for do we acquire this organization or not? Yeah, yeah. And actually, it's interesting. It's something I've been looking into recently because um, because of the rise of, you know, of um, transformational deals and sort of inorganic growth that's happening at the moment. And I've done got a, you know, a, a, a little bit of background in, in working on, on mergers and acquisitions in, in particular in culture, almost due diligence. And and I think one observation, one observation generally is quite often the people stuff is left a little bit to the end you know it's almost a we'll go into a closed room and figure out the really complicated financial bit of the deal it's viable we'll we'll get to the next stage and then it's almost a now what do we do with the people thing so so you know if i had one ask of anybody listening who's going through um this at the moment it would be to bring your, your people experts in um either from you know the, the the external deal team or or um whoever can be involved um in-house early um because it's so complicated <laughs> so so one um, when i was uh, sort of going back through all my um my work on that there was a couple of stats that stuck out to me that bang up to date actually and and one of them was um, so. When I looked up what the global value of of uh, deals was in 2022, it's 3.8 trillion dollars. Wow! So that's pretty sight. You know, that's a that's a big amount of money. And then I I knew there were some stats around how important culture is is to the you know make or break of a of a deal. And this I think this came from from PwC actually in one of their surveys, merger and acquisition surveys. They say or they found that. 65% of acquirers say cultural issues hampered the creation of value in their deal. So 65% of acquirers, now that's not a dollar amount, but if 65% of those deals have the value creation and the total value creation last year being 3.8 trillion being hampered because of cultural issues, to me, I just, 
I, 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 you know, the mind boggles us. You know, why, why, why we we need to be bringing this to the to the to the table a lot earlier and talking about it and figuring it out. And as I said earlier, there are there are no easy answers to this. I'm not saying, you know, and then follow this process or do these steps, uh, or you know, um, deploy this this platform, this tool, or whatever, and magically, you know, those cultural issues will be resolved. They probably won't. But but what it does require is some of those expert brains, that brain power around the table to start thinking about. Okay, if we've got two two very different cultures here that are coming together, what do we need to protect from that? Because it's it's part of that deal value um and what can we let go and and that's okay because actually you know there, there'll be some you know um cost realization or, or or whatever and 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 you know people may well leave and and it's all but it's just protecting we, we need to keep some of these people to, to realize the value it, it, i think it's absolutely crucial for, for anyone going through inorganic um growth at the moment it's interesting i think mismatch cultures are the best demonstration of the power and impact of culture from an organizational risk point of view in that. And again, there's, there's different approaches um, to this, but if you think about how a company operates at, at different levels, so taking your um, your earlier conversation and turning it upside down and, and starting from what the individual does, what the team does, how people at a team level manage contention between resources and how they do things, the processes, but then to how the processes get created and how things get fixed when things go outside of the process. And as you start to get into that outer level, that's your catastrophic risk to the business. And that is actually a culture issue. And again, to mismatch cultures, if you've got one culture that was had a particular lever for enforcing we do the right thing here around how they decide actually this process is wrong because um, you know, whatever the reason is, we're going to go fix it to then introduce a culture that has a different lever. Sometimes you can end up with no lever on, well, that's broken and I know, but I don't think that's my job to fix that anymore. Or yeah. I don't think I can do that. Or I think if I speak out about that, that, yeah, I'm going to lose my position. And when you get to that point, which is definitely cultural failure, that's where you get your big systemic failures are the kind of things that we've seen in the last few years. And that is culture because it's that outer ring where people decide what's important and whether they can do something about it or not. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And actually, that's it's um, a nice term to be using lever, I think, because um, it's something, that, you know, the approach that I take when I get involved in a, in a piece of culture work is Culture as a word means so many things to different people, and we can all debate the definition of culture, and we come up with an academic view, and we can come up with a you know anthropologist view, and we can come up with you know we, we've all got our preferred definition. Um, when I when I get presented with an organisation or a part of an organisation that has a culture challenge, normally that culture challenge that you know the the, the issue might present as we've got a toxic culture or this went wrong and it's a cultural problem. When when I drill down into it and you get to the next level below culture as the umbrella term, there's usually five, six, seven things underneath that that actually almost so far, in my experience, almost everything boils down to one or a combination of these things. And these are big things in and of themselves. So one of them you've mentioned where, you know, this might be the processes. Are fundamentally different and we see that a lot companies that are going through um 
uh, digitization at the moment, you know, and we've all been going on that journey for a long time, but there's still a long way to go, um, you know, where you've got a, um, a, a more traditional set of products or services or, you know, whatever it is the organization provides, but there's also bringing that together with the how, to, how do we digitize. There's quite often naturally a clash there in the in the processes, but there can also be a clash, some of the other areas. So that's that's one lever processes I, I find that um, needs to be looked at underneath the umbrella term of culture. But then there's some other ones. And, and I think one of the biggest is leadership behavior. You know, so people perhaps underestimating the influence that a, a leader has. And if we just touch briefly back again onto the mergers and acquisitions, where you have one particular leadership style in one organization and a very different one in another, um, that's that causes problems unless it's managed very carefully. Um, and, and the management of that very carefully is it, quite often working really closely with, with your, your senior uh, communications folk to, to understand how you message some of these things. And, and, and again, just to give you know, a, a little bit of a, a, you know, small, a small example to bring things to life, but when I've worked on um, a merger and acquisition in, in the past, there was a there was a sense from the from the deal team we can't go out with anything we can't go out with anything we can't go out with anything super top secret yeah did it whatever absolutely all of the details of the of the deal are completely you know not not allowed to be released but at a certain point in the transaction some details are able to you know you're allowed to announce that the deal's um, happening and and you know there's various stages of that at certain points then in those communications. I would strongly advise that whatever you can say about perhaps the leadership style of the, whether it's a new organization that's being formed or one's being subsumed by another should be said because people will join the dots for themselves in those organizations and they'll probably join them incorrectly. So I mean, they will, nature abhors a vacuum, they will, they will make up their own um, views on what's going to happen. And it will probably be 10 times worse than, than what is actually going to happen. And they may well start to vote with their feet. Now, some people, you might you might be okay with that. But but others, you're like, gosh, that's our top talent walking out the door, possibly with all of our clients. Um, so so there, there's some you know small bits and pieces that can be done quite early on um, in those processes. But it doesn't just apply to M&A and deals. You know, even in the normal course of what I think of as a, a, almost a, um, a culture review trigger point, so the trigger point might be a change in leadership, you know, either the CEO or a chairman or chairperson or one of the other senior leaders um, might be moving on and you've got a new person coming in. Have a look and, and what what's their style? What might that do to the culture? What do they what do they what are their views on culture? You know, what do they want to bring? What the, how front and center is it of their mind or is it not at all? Um, are they more it just happens organically? So that might be one one um, inflection point or trigger point that comes in. Change of strategy. You've got the same leaders, but you need to pivot and do something differently. That should also be a point to start thinking about and looking at, at your culture. A massive global event. <laughs> so that might not be in your control. In fact, it probably isn't in your control. But actually, a massive pandemic pandemic, or a war or you know any of the things that, that are facing us at the moment start to have a look and think about what, how might this be impacting our people's behaviour and, 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 and look at that. So... So there's a number of, of triggers, I would say, that should be points where there are natural points where it goes, okay, let's think about culture here. And then you can start to look at some of these levers. So, so we've talked a little bit about processes, we've talked a bit about leadership behavior. Um, 
is your strategy clear? This this again, I, I'm 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 always a little bit surprised actually, and and I only say this because I worked in strategy for a while before moving into HR. Um, but some some businesses might the strategy might be clear in somebody's head somewhere, but it's certainly not clear to um, the rest of the organisation. Um, is is that clear? Because if that isn't clear, you you can think that's well, that's not a cultural problem. That's a, you know they need to be clear on their strategy and communicate it. That's just, just that. But actually, if you're not clear on your strategy and you haven't communicated it, people don't know what role they play. Um, so how do they know what what their part is in the organisation? And and a, and a equal counterpoint to being clear and communicating well and getting people to engage with the, the business strategy is have you got a nice clear well communicated and engaged with purpose and and or vision and a set of values and i know values are controversial lots of people sort of roll their eyes and go oh that's you know it's a mouse mat and it's some words on a on a you know on a poster on a wall or in a lobby somewhere that's all values are it's like well yeah that is what values are when they're done badly um when they're done well is people should should they should resonate with the people in your organization so that not only do they know what they're doing because they're clear on the strategy but they know how they're going to go about doing it and it's inspiring to them you know i'm not saying everybody works for a company where it's you know um you know creating world peace and some some higher higher goals and 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 aims that chime in beautifully with your personal values but at least think actually yeah i get what this company does and and i like how they do it so that that works for me it's interesting that aspect of culture and transitions and again i think it's very easy sometimes people to maybe listen and go oh well yeah i'm not going to do mergers and acquisitions so i don't have that problem so i think it's a good point to make that actually the transition of a leader a change in strategy can be just as significant an event but also there's something in the way that changing circumstances, either for the leadership team or for the organization, that almost moves the ball on the pitch is the only way I can think to describe it, where suddenly you start exercising a bit of the culture that was always there, perhaps not visible before. And again, one of the some more nuanced ways to think about culture is in terms of those um, values and principles that people use and it may be that there were certain trade-offs that they didn't have to exercise before and suddenly when you move into a different phase where it's like oh actually this is about cost control where suddenly you get different dynamics around well does that mean that we shortchange the customer does that mean that we shortchange ourselves where how are we going to make that happen where you can suddenly expose either things where the culture was not aligned even though it seemed like it was before or where you've where the culture is not as stable in terms of having an appropriate set of, of values that are functional for the business and so organizations that can seem perfectly healthy suddenly end up very quickly dysfunctional just because that ball's got moved in terms of what they've got to exercise because the external circumstances have changed or conversely you get a really dysfunctional organization and we saw this a lot during covid where you know you'd rate an organization as not necessarily highly performance in terms of the culture but suddenly when the ball got moved to this survival quadrant they did that phenomenally well they knew how to do that and they could create change and do a whole set of things which previously weren't possible because they got moved away from the value conflicts that they inherently had as an organization to suddenly realizing oh we're one team we've got a set of aligned goals here Yes, makes me think two things. One is about um, 
culture isn't and culture change specifically culture just exists anyway right you know every company has a culture whether you choose to shape it as a leader or or, or not um but if you want to change the culture it really helps to have a burning platform and you know, I, you know, I was wince saying that because i usually means not you know not a very nice thing is happening but but you know the you know covid-19 is a, is a great example of that 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 has changed a lot of things for a lot of organizations for 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 good and and in some cases for bad um reputational damage you know hitting, hitting the headlines <laughs> no one wants that um it's terrible but if you kind of hit rock bottom um or or not far off rock bottom then actually there's a real it becomes really clear that you've got some fundamental things to sort out and they may or may not be cultural things but if they are that that actually focuses the mind and the attention on, on what needs what needs doing so that that um struck me as you as you were speaking that it's almost easier um in a lot of ways when you when you're in a bit of a negative space sometimes around around culture but it also made me think when you said some what some of the companies are doing well you know particularly when some of the other um operational or perhaps day-to-day operational things were whipped away as they were um for, for lots of people during the during the pandemic and it just was hunker down and get into survival mode one of the things i think that's that i've seen work really well is um ethical dilemma training or exercises, training is too strong a word. I'm not a big believer in you can you know, just train a culture in um, particularly. But what those are, are they get at the nitty gritty. I think in most instances, people know, you know, the, the obvious, this is legal, this is illegal. or And even to a lesser extent, this is what the policy says we have to do. And this is what we're not allowed to do from policy point of view. So taking it one step removed from legality. Um, where culture gets really tricky is in just almost the preference, the personal preferences. You know, well, I, I, when a customer comes in and, and says this, I'd say this. And someone goes, oh, gosh, I, I would absolutely never, never say that. What I would say is this. And you get into those kind of conversations. Now, some of those, I think, are great just for people to be having that uh, thrashed out you know, as a team and just go, you know, what do we want to stand for? When this kind of thing comes up, this grey area where there's no clear, hard and fast, right and wrong, what do we want to stand for as a team? And and that then probably, and that's another dynamic we haven't really touched on yet. We've talked about individuals and leaders and, and C-suite and, and boards, but team dynamics for culture is super important. Um, you know, because then you take it away from an individual point of view, which culture isn't. It can't be by, by definition. It's always collective. Um, and you then are setting what you stand for as a collective. And hopefully the leader of the team is able to then shape that way you reach a deadlock. Um, but but the idea there being we've all now bought into this. We've thrashed it out. I can see both sides of the coin of the arguments. And actually we've agreed you know, our, our team are going to approach things like this, where there is no hard or fast, fast rule. That's really that's really empowering. It's really mature. It's really um, adult to adult, because the other quite standard cultural problem I see is where cultures become quite parent-child. Um, you know, I'm bringing a bit of, sort of pop psychology into this, but but where you know we, we're the we're you know either the paternal the maternal. You know, we provide for you. You do you do what 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 we say and then you're removing agency from people and some people like that 
and, and they, they yeah, great, okay, you just tell us what to do. But then you get inefficiencies and a lack of productivity and a lack of imagination, and a lack of creativity and a whole load of things that causes. Or some people rail against it and go, no, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. And you get some um, slightly destructive behaviours perhaps from railing against that um, parent-child. So trying to move, to move the conversation onto some of these difficult behavioural choices so that they are genuine, mature adult to adult conversations i think is probably a good um good starting point and the empowering nature of a good culture i always sort of memorable career moments for me um i was working for juniper networks and scott krenz was the ceo at the time and, and a very successful uh, previous business uh, to juniper um and we were talking about various bits of strategy and things that uh, needed doing and I was really, I guess, as a somebody earlier in my career, fumbling around for you know what things am I allowed to do and what do I have to come back and 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 ask and talk to other other people, and uh, he said to me, he said Benjamin, these are our values as a company, and and went through them and they, they were pretty rich values because it wasn't just the one words. Actually, each one had a statement which really clarified what the behavioural output of that value was. So these are our values, and this is how we do things, and if you do something. And it's in line with those values. You're never going to be in trouble. If you do something that's out of line with these values, we're going to have a very stern conversation. But if it's in line with those values, that's the right thing to do. Go and do it and and clear the way. And it was it was an interesting thing that particularly in environments where you have to make decisions quickly and you don't have the time to get everybody aligned, um, which was very much the case at that point in the company's growth. Actually, that culture, a strong culture, a well, a spouse culture becomes a really good shortcut to sound decision making and getting people aligned um, that, that otherwise can lead to a lot of um, procrastination and going around in circles, which I, I've watched happen at bigger companies uh, later on in my career where there just wasn't that set of values where people could align and just ended up in uh, you know fights between different divisions around which product was and wasn't going to go ahead. Yeah, um, I love that. I love that example. I think, you know, you've given a really great illustration of, you know, what what values can do when they're done well, you know, and that is absolutely act as a heuristic for, you know, how 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 do we behave in this situation? So, you know, just that shortcut of, uh, gosh, I've got to act quickly. What do I do? If, if, if a company or a leader is coming out and saying, whatever you do, as long as you're behaving in line with our values, because we are so bought into those values, you know, and we believe in them, that actually you, you can do no wrong as long as you're able to justify, you know, you've said I did it because of it fits in with X, Y, Z, and, and we can see that. I think that's, that's, um, that's fantastic. That's exactly as they should be being used, and and that's the opposite of the you know values as a mouse mat and a and a whatever else. If if people are actually sort of putting almost it's almost um, uh, really moving performance management into becoming completely values aligned. You, you, you know, you're almost saying this is how we look at how our people are performing from a behaviours point of view, not necessarily what they're delivering from a you know widgets or you know um, whatever they, they actually produce but from a behaviors point of view that's um that's best practice i'd almost say well it's, and it's interesting and i'm going to pull you back to an earlier question now because interestingly at juniper at least at that point in time the performance of evaluation uh, the performance evaluation of employees was actually done partially on value alignment which is fascinating and not something i've ever seen anywhere else but there was a performance aspect of it and there was a values aspect of it. And you could be a best performer 
But if you weren't exhibiting the company values, then that was not going to be a positive performance review for you. Conversely, if you you were at the weaker end of performance, but were very strong on the values, it was very much around how do we address these performance issues and get you up and out of this. Uh, you know, if, if you're in the bottom of those two things, then that was a whole different conversation. But it was interesting that that was baked in, which brings me round to, so if culture is so important, how do you measure it? Yeah. Great question, uh, long-standing question that I don't think um, anyone has answered in in the in the ten years. You know, in a nice, neat, neat way, anyway. Um, but it's given me, you know, I've had ten years to think about the answer to this question. So exactly, <laughs> it's been, it's been a long time here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what do I think? Um, I'm really conflicted about this question. On one hand. I, I firmly believe there are things about, and, and this is a really um, timely question with um, things like the rise of uh, chat GPT and open AI and, and some of the technology that's coming along because without going too far down a philosophical route, because there, there is a danger of, of sliding down that rabbit hole. But what it, the questions it makes me ask is what is it to be human? So what is it that we're retaining as as the processing power and, and the big data that's being pulled into these these things increases and kind of overtakes us and our brains, what have we still got to offer? Almost, and and the answer to that I think is some of the the, the things that um, make me rail against measuring culture. So, imagination, creativity, ambition, motivation, you know, bravery, some of those things. Does does me having a score of twenty six? on imagination versus yours, Benjamin, of 76, what what does that mean and what's it going to be used for? And I kind of feel a bit the same about trying to trying to put numbers and metrics to a, to an organization's culture. I believe, and it won't be the first time you've heard this, you know, I, I decided this a long time ago that an organization's culture to me is a bit like an individual's personality. You know, and I, I don't want to be told I'm, you know, 26 on the uh, on the creativity front and I should be 52. You know, it, 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 it's kind of annoying, but it's also kind of irrelevant. Um, you know, it's, it's all it's all um, uh, completely subjective. So so there's one part of me that think, feels very strongly about that and that there's just some things you cannot categorize. You just have to feel. And, and we've all felt when there's a good culture. Can we put a number to it or a metric to it? Or can we look at the data as to why that is? Probably not. And, and that's also backed up by when we do sometimes look at the data that's available. Quite often it's a survey for, for culture. Even when we do have some of that data available, it doesn't always match up with what we're hearing or feeling people saying on the ground. So an engagement survey may say we're all scoring 76 um, engagement, but actually you walk around the office or the branch or the you know, factory or, or whatever it is, or, um, ask people online. And they're like, yeah, it doesn't feel that great at the moment, to be honest. Now, that could be a question, a challenge with the survey design. It could be a question with, you know, at the at point in time, it could be all, all sorts of stuff. But I, I, what I do believe is we need to put the time and effort and thinking into a more holistic way of looking at the various data sources we do have or that are shortly coming online or or coming online now-ish to put together a whole picture on what that's telling us about a culture and what I would strongly advocate for anyone looking at this at the moment um, is based that on whatever the behavioral outcomes are that you're you're wanting 
So I wouldn't do it for just doing its sake. It takes a lot of time and effort and energy and money and resources for, you know, to produce something, whether that's through a snazzy Power BI dashboard or, or anything else, any other tool or platform that you've got. People tend to look at it fairly briefly. Some people get quite impressed by some of the nice visualizations you can get. And go, oh, that's great. But it may well shunt them off down a rabbit hole of chasing action and activity when it hasn't presented a more um, broader picture of what, what the culture actually is. So rather than just going, what's our culture like? I would advocate thinking about what's the behavior change that you're looking for. So what's not working right now? Ideally, what's not working right now that's preventing us from delivering, achieving our full potential, our strategy, whatever that might be, our business results. Put that into behavioral terms. What's it about? Is it about people aren't being accountable for their, their work or people aren't being inclusive or what, what? however you want to phrase it, put it into behavioral terms. Then look at the data that you've got already. You know, don't necessarily go out and invent anything new or, or buy something new, but just see what you've got. You know, how is that showing up? Is it showing up in attrition? Is it showing up in performance reviews? Is it showing up in survey data? You can use survey data. What sources of data have you got that indicate whether, you know, that's true or false, that statement? Then think about if you need to supplement that with something and go, okay, well, we've got a survey, ask some very generic high-level questions about inclusivity, but we don't really get at what we think the issue is here, which is this. You might then need to build something else out and and then take it from there and then keep the humble mindset that there there is culture is never done it's never there's never a, a solution to it and there shouldn't be it, it's like having a solution to somebody's personality it doesn't it doesn't work like that so so think about what nudges and experiments and action you might want to take do them record the results change it if it's not working do something different and keep on that humble i none of us have the right answer here um, but what else can we try? But but ground it in your strategy, ground it in what behavioral outcomes you want, use what data you've already got available, then supplement that with, with extra stuff, and then keep testing and experimenting the interventions and actions that you're putting in place on the back of it, I would say. It's interesting. The yeah, I, I think almost every single kind of all-hand survey that I've seen has been an exercise in very poor design when it comes to measuring culture because because usually I think hey, they're not designed to measure culture oftentimes there are normative assessments it's like are we the best place to work it's like well, that's a topic for a whole other podcast on that one but um but but moving aside from that oftentimes they're not asking about culture and you said you made an interesting point that culture is how people behave together and yet a lot of times people design those question sets to ask very individual questions and that's you know valid and useful but that's not going to tell you about culture and it's not going to tell you about how people do things here so for us in designing questions it's really getting to well what behaviors do you see and how do you feel about those and how that expresses itself at different points in the organization how does that work at a team level how does that work in your perspective the leadership and you can really then start to get under the lid of what's happening here and where have we got inconsistencies and again oftentimes people look at the data like a performance score it's like how fast did they run the 100 meters and when we have to spend a lot of time dragging people out of it's not about whether you've got an 81 or an 82 it's really what's the balance here and what people are experiencing and where is that relative to where you want it to be? Okay, you're trying to be more innovative. Let's look at the aspects around how open people are, 
to new ideas, how new ideas are received. That's the lever you probably want to pull. And again, it's not about whether you get 84 or 85 on that. It's about, okay, can we do something that moves the dial on that? Because that's what we've identified that we need to move. Or maybe actually you discover in doing that, oh, actually, everyone's really open to new ideas. We've got a different bottleneck here for driving innovation in the organization. So it's, it's asking questions to get you to new questions, which, again, a lot of the time what people roll out again and again and again, the same questions every year are not anchored in the culture and not anchored in behavior and not anchored in levers that you can actually change. Um, which just bring me back to what you said there, which is, well, what, what are the levers that you have as a leadership team? Because everyone says, oh, changing culture is really, really hard. Um, and then then walks away at that point. Um, yeah. So you know, are there a finite set of levers? Or what? where do you go if you've got a culture issue and you want to start driving change? Yeah, yes, I, I believe there are. I don't believe it's, uh, it, and it's too big to do anything about. You know, I, I kind of think, when I when I think back, and again, I say this just from having, you know, early past, or well, most of my career actually in, in financial services, how much time and effort and thought has gone into risk management. You know, I would love to see that same field and industry and resource and brain power built up around culture and behavior change because I don't think they're that dissimilar. You know, they're both incredibly intangible. We don't, we can't really ascribe actually numbers to them. You can put some sort of metrics in place, but it's very difficult. And yet we seem to have managed to do it for risk. Um, we haven't for culture. So I do believe, I do believe there are some levers that are available. So regardless of you know how how we get to measuring it, I think as long as the principles of focusing on what outcomes you're looking for so so it's almost starting with the outcomes but then working back from that you've established what you want to see then then some of the things you've got available to you so i've mentioned some of them already really you know you do need a clear well communicated business strategy i know that sounds like you know, business 101 but that will impact if, if you've got a, a strategy of growth or even if it's a strategy and times times are um, tough and you're looking for some efficiency somewhere just being open about that and, and people will see the authenticness of it and and that will help the culture as well so you've got strategy that's you know sort of a once not once and done but you, you know you don't need to spend hours agonizing over that bit for culture necessarily same with your purpose or mission or vision but i definitely think a clear set of values that lots of people have, have bought into um you know they've not just been dropped on from the, from a great hike from the top down um and and actually translating those clearly into behaviors i think it, it is something an organization needs to have in place so that you can do things like align some of your people processes to those so your performance management, as we talked about, or, or hiring, um, some of your learning and development activity. Um, the other thing you can do when you've got that is if you're an organisation that has lots of third parties, you know, your values should also really be be appearing in your contracts that you're signing up to with others. You know, this is what we believe in. We hope we've got some similarities here. Then there's leadership behaviour. So, so there's a whole load of things, as we know, that can be done about leadership behaviour. But, but that probably sits within the, the sort of um, learning and leadership development space. But the final sort of tranche of levers, I would say, are almost a much more sort of operational kind of day to day things that are all massive buckets. I'm not going to make any apologies for these levers being huge in and of themselves. They're sort of one lever with lots of mini levers underneath them or one cog with a load of other cogs, um, if we're using a machine analogy. So so they, they include things like processes, systems, governance, 
you know, how, how, what have you got in place, if anything? How how long does it take to make a decision across the organisation? How um, how efficient are your processes in terms of getting you the the results that you're wanting from a business point of view? All of that. People people start to game systems if they're feeling like things are laborious and clunky and they can't see the point in them. They'll start to find their own workarounds to them or just not do them or do them really apathetically. You know, they just won't use them. And that is why, you know, when you, when you think of big um, tech uh, programs, they quite often, if they don't get the return on investment they were predicting, it's quite often because the uptake hasn't been on day one. Everybody was using this tech in the way that it's meant to be used. It's like, no, because, you know, we don't see the point of it and we like the old way and, and all of that stuff. So you've got that whole tranche of operational stuff. The internal environment. So think about, and this is where it all plays into the remote working and hybrids. Think about where people are actually physically sat. And that's not me coming out with a, they should be sat here and they should be in the office two days a week. Or It's not that. It's just going, there will be an impact on if you're walking into an office versus you're sat at home versus you're sat in a cafe versus you're in a branch versus you're in a in a factory somewhere that will physically feel different and you will you will operationally be different in the team that you work in because of that so how do people collaborate how do you build social cohesion um across that and then and then the final bit of um capacity and capability so have you got the right amount of people to be delivering what you need to too many you know and and people are like well i can have you know, put my feet up a little bit and the productivity probably goes down too too few and everybody knows what that feels like it's an awful place to be and lots of people are in that position at, at the moment but the but the skills so capacity and capability capability being things like think about the human skills that may or may not exist at the moment in your in your employee base you know and that is how are people able to relate to each other to connect is how, how is the inclusion um, across the organisations, diversity of thought. How is um, people feeling like they can speak up and step out of the norm? Because that encourages creativity and innovation. You know, so there's a whole load of skills in there that are not your hard skills. They're the human skills. But actually, all of those things are things leaders can start to think about. Actually, this is the one lever that we really need to double down on because actually we won't get the behavioral outcomes we need because we know. And I think, if I'm honest, most organizations that have run you know, any kind of data gathering or surveys for some period of time will, in their heart of hearts, know probably the main one or two things they need to be focusing on really if they're, if they're very honest with themselves and go actually it's because of this we're too bureaucratic or you know we're too competitive with each other or it's it's the, it's these things and 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 get to work on that and that's it see whatever the problem there is a lever and it's yeah. it's interesting that you know, quite often people do know but sometimes it takes that um, you know, call it a map, giving you the data to get people to the point of going, yeah, actually, we do all know that this is an issue. <laughs> you know, this is something that we're going to change and we can we can commit to making that change. Um, seeing as you dragged AI into it, um, as a, an interesting tale um, I was reading uh, this week, there's a lot in the AI world around kind of goal-directed behaviour and you know, getting AI to achieve things. And it's, it's interesting that a lot of the approach that historically had been and again potentially driven by the fact that a lot of early AI was 
built for doing things like you know, winning chess games. So it would try and play out every possible move uh, to work out the, the best move forward. And, and that was very much the, the approach. And one of the things that's changed in the last few years is to go backwards and say, this is the goal. Find all the possible paths back from the goal back to where we are now. Um, so we could have saved them several years of research, just go and grab a cavi book, uh, begin with the end in mind. Um, but it is interesting that that, you know, even in the AI world, it's that thing of like work out where it is that you want to get to and identify the barriers on the way to that. And then you're off to the races because there will be a lever you can pull. There will be an intervention and it might be a personal behavioral change for the leadership team. It yeah. might be something structural. You know, it could be many things, but that that one thing can be the thing that unlocks change because you know, whilst cultures are relatively static and relatively resistant to change, they do and can and will change over time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just as we're all you know humans and and grow and change over time, so so will a, an organisational culture. That and 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 that is also another good reason for those triggers. Actually, you know, an events happens and actually that might then be the point of going actually let, let's let's dig into the, the culture a little bit here we've got a new ceo or we've got a change in strategy or something else has happened this is our chance to face into actually what we think we know what our real problem is it's this and that is the chance to go okay we've had an amnesty now we're, we're the, the, the doors are open that's the thing really we need to go after fixing and until we fix that we're not going to get culture change what you can get and just to, to throw this in because i'm sure you know, coming to the end of our time, but but one thing I do see a lot of that get lots of things get badged up as culture change, and I would argue they're probably not culture change. That's not to say they're not going to have some great behavioural changes. You know, so you know, a, a few years back, unconscious bias training was a thing, probably still is in some places. That is amazing. Do do that. Um, you know, and hopefully some light bulbs will go on in quite a few people's minds as to what having unconscious bias can lead to and trying to mitigate for that and all of those things. So definitely do that. Will you necessarily get the culture change or a culture change that you're wanting just through doing unconscious bias training? Probably not. And I think particularly when you see some of the reports that come out, um, you know, I've got um, friends that work in in um, the National Health Trusts um, doing doing uh, work with Speak Up, um, but also now they're 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 um, diversifying that across to the police force, um, to fire service, and you know, th there's a whole load of thing interventions. People seem to like to go straight to either the metrics or the intervention. So they'll say, Alison, tell me what data you've got on culture. What metrics can we use for culture? Or they'll say, what action can we take to change our culture? Or And they might even be a bit more specific. We want a customer-focused culture. What action can we take? Like we, we need to start with the, what's the actual outcome and goal, as we're talking about. Start start there, and then we can come on to metrics, and then we can come on to what interventions might change some of those metrics. But don't go necessarily for the big, bright shiny thing and expect you know the amount of times that i can see that they'll do the big bright shiny culture program change and you know sort of send every leader you know 500 leaders to a really expensive training program and then expect at the end of it the the culture of the organization to to change and and it might do very 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 slowly but at the same time as that's changing slowly as leaders are digesting and putting into practice some of this stuff so is the external environment so is the strategy so are those leaders leaving and new ones are coming in so 
actually, you know, think about the outcome that you're wanting and target that rather than just general culture change or because it's a buzzword or because we've seen everybody else do this amazing thing and, and everyone's raving about it. I mean, do that because they're raving about it and you want to do it, but don't necessarily expect the culture change up the back of it that you're wanting. Yeah, and it is people often rush to trying to adjust the output measure, which makes yeah. all of the wrong things happen because you can get something that looks good, but that's a very transitory state. And the long-term damage that's done as a result of that can sometimes be an order of magnitude harder to fix than the original problem. So it's that balance of have some output measures, but have some input measures as well, and make sure that you're looking to operate on the change rather than operate on the measures. Um, yeah, absolutely. Spot on. Oh, well, it's absolutely great to talk to you, Alison. Thank you very much. We will add into the show notes um, some links so people can find out a bit more about you um, and some other resources as well. Um, thank you very much for your time and a fascinating conversation. It's an absolute pleasure. Lovely to speak to you, Benjamin. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Together, a podcast brought to you by Social Optic. If you aren't already subscribed, search for Social Optic Work Together on your favourite podcast service. And if you found it helpful, don't forget to help others find the podcast by giving it a rating, leaving a review and telling others about the show. You can find more from Social Optic on our website, socialoptic.com. If your organisation would benefit from data-driven decision making and desire to work better together, then get in touch through the chat box on our website. Drop us an email or give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. You can also read more on our blog, where we explore more of the themes we discuss on the podcasts. This podcast was hosted by Benjamin Ellis and produced by me, Chris Trim.